not only transparency and right to information uh, is important, but also having very detailed rules, it makes everyone's life much easier, include the machine. Welcome to this new episode of Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. The voice you just heard was Fernanda Odia's voice. We interviewed her and Anwesha Chakraborty in this episode of Kickback. The interview will provide you an insight into how technology is used to fight corruption in Brazil and India. You will learn about the challenges of sustaining collective action through technology and why many activists actually prefer not to be called anti-corruption activists. You also hear Fernanda's and Anwesha's utopian version for the future of how technology could help to reduce corruption. So without further ado, here is the interview. Today I am thrilled to welcome Anwesha and Fernanda, two very exciting researchers who were recommended by Alicia Matoni, who we interviewed in a previous episode. And Alicia talked a lot about how technology can be used in the fight against corruption and has started a big ERC-funded project on it. And today, we're going to go to the ground <laughs> and find out how uh, Anuisha and Fernanda are actually doing research in two very interesting countries when it comes to corruption, namely India and Brazil. So welcome to the podcast. Maybe I start with you, Fernanda. Could you briefly tell our listeners what you do, what type of research you do, and uh, what your topic of interest is? Sure. I'm going back on time, and I used to be a journalist. I, was, I worked as a reporter for almost 20 years. And for a long period of my life, my main task was discovering the next week's scandal in Brazil. And I must confess that in Brazil, this is not that hard. The most difficult part for me, at least, was provoking a reaction. And by that, I mean seeing control agencies reacting to what we were pointing out, or even the government and also the civil society. So I decided to stop a bit. I took a sabbatical and I did my master's and criminology and criminal justice. And my dissertation was on politicians who punish their own peers in the Congress, political corruption, basically. I went back to Brazil after the master's and, okay, I covered the presidential palace, then I covered the federal police. And when the car wash investigation was there, And its first phase was came into light, became public, and was there in front of the federal police headquarters. But then something like the academic world was still attracting me, and I left journalism once more to go to do my PhD. And at this time, I also look at peers investigating peers, but within the federal civil service. So I've been always interested in controlling corruption, how we can curb corruption. And in 2020, I started this new project. I'm part of the BIT Act team. BIT Act stands for Bottom-Up Initiatives and Anti-Corruption Technologies. 
It's a project led by Professor Alicia Mattoni here at the University of Bologna. We are a group of scholars and I'm looking at Brazil and Uruguay. What's quite interesting because they are completely two different countries in all senses. And what has been striking me the most is the fact that Brazil, in Brazil, I can see a more active civil society fighting corruption and also developing anti-corruption technologies from both bottom-up and top-down. So that's me right now. Uh, that's so interesting. Uh, so many things I, I would love to follow up on. I hope we get a chance to. Before we dive deeper into the South American context, let's uh, take a swerve and go to India <laughs> and hear from Anwesha and her research. Uh, yeah, so of course, thanks for having me. And I'm really happy to share the space with Fernanda, who is, of course, my colleague from the same project. So I'm also part of this project, BitApp. And I'm looking at South Asia. And of course, I mean, India in a very big way, because I'm also from India. My background into studying corruption is actually very recent, to be very honest. I was just very fascinated when I saw this call for this ERC project for postdocs. My uh, background is in science and technology studies, science communication, science and tech policies, and all kinds of things dealing basically with the interface of technology and society. And so that is what attracted me to this project when I saw that it was looking at how technology is, you know, the, the crucial, let's say, factor, which is either helping address the issue of corruption or whether it is at all addressing the issue of corruption. So I was, of course, being from India, which, as you know, is one sixth of the world's population. It's its multiplicity and it, it, it's very well known. And of course, I mean, as we say, you can spend entire lifetime studying India. And so I was very curious to look at India from this perspective. And while my own background was in, uh, well, I did a whole bunch of different things, nonprofit management, literature, communications, linguistics, basically did the whole gamut. But then politics was always interesting to me. And India is also an extremely politically active country with lots of political parties and lots of partisan politics. So I was particularly interested to see how civil society organizations in a country like India uh, are addressing this issue and using technology to boot. So it was like a win-win situation for me. And I'm really glad I got in because, of course, I'm getting to learn a hell lot of new things about my country because of this project. That's so interesting. I, I want to um, directly follow up on what you just said, Anwesha, because you mentioned two things, like how we could use technology to fight corruption, maybe to just, you know, improve, let's say, welfare of society, and then sort of how you can engage, involve civil society. And I mean, I have to be honest, like my own background, there was always this one tool in the beginning of my research that a lot of people were talking about and that there was a lot of hype around and it stemmed originally from India. And that platform is called I Paid a Bribe. And I know that you've worked on this quite a lot. I started off thinking like, okay, this is it. This is great. This is going to help people find out where honest offices are and it might actually help, you know, really like a bottom-up approach to uh, reduce corruption. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about that tool, whether this, you know, enthusiasm is justified, what your own takes are 
And sort of where it also came from would be very interesting as well. A lot of questions, you can pick uh, the order in which you want to answer them. So I paid a bribe is it's an emblematic example used in anti-corruption research on ICT-based uh, civil society interventions. And this online initiative uh, was started in 2010 by a Bangalore-based nonprofit organization, which is called Janagraha, and that roughly translates to people power. And the idea was to leverage the anonymity of the internet to provide a voice to citizens uh, who have been uh, victims of corruption and they can um, report details of bribes paid, including the bribe amount, the name of the corrupt official if they want to, and the services for which bribe was uh, taken. So um, today, especially, uh, it's important to mention that except for using that data for further analysis, I paid a bribe as an initiative does not really take complaints and stories of bribery forward to the authorities. That kind of stopped about uh, three odd years back for multiple reasons, which are a bit difficult to disclose. And uh, on occasions, they have also cooperated with government to improve services and reduce you know, the possibility of corruption. So the main idea today of I paid a bribe existing is not necessarily to proceed against wrongdoers with legal actions, but really to build a repository of corruption-related data. And just to add one more thing, uh, the organization Janagraha was started by uh, two U.S. returnees to India. I mean, they worked in the U.S. and then they came back to India because they wanted to make lives in Indian cities better. Their names are Swati and Ramesh Ramanathan. So they are now also, I think, at the, the, the board uh, of Janagraha. They are the co-founders, basically, of this organization. And I spoke with some of the people who were directly connected to uh, I Paid a Bribe and its uh, development. And uh, there were activists and civil society workers from different countries who wanted to replicate I paid a bribe in their own countries as well. So Janagraha got a lot of uh, requests from these organizations and from these activists. And as you know, if you go on I paid a bribe's website, you'll see that, um, I mean, there are multiple countries which are well supposed to have the website, but then some of them don't work. And that's that's a story that we need to go more in detail, maybe in the next question. My own impression is also that it is becoming more difficult to uh, to address the issue of corruption head on because there is always the issue of burden of proof because when these complaints were lodged and there were dedicated bureaucrats who were handling these complaints at least some of them were being taken to these public offices and it seems that there were some clashes and it seems that you know it became more and more difficult over the years. But this is, of course, not what my respondents have said. This is my interpretation of what they have said. That's very interesting. I would love to come back to that. Also, just anecdotally, I mean, I went on the website just today and wanted to see how it looks like in other countries because I remember doing that a while ago and I went on the Kenyan version 
And it opened up a, a website that promoted anti-snoring sleep devices. So I was kind of, you know, like a bit pessimistic about the success in other countries. But speaking of sort of hype around a tech tool and how much it can be translated into other countries, I mean, Fernanda, you have been researching as one of the projects, um, the Tweetbot Rosie Serenata do Amor, uh, or Operação Serenata do Amor, I should say, and the Tweetbot Rosie. Could you tell our listeners briefly what your impressions are? I mean, um, we have had Iria Muskov on the podcast where he describes the project itself. Could you still maybe very briefly describe what it does and whether you think enthusiasm about this tool is justified? Sure. So Operação Serenata de Amor, or in English Operation Love Serenade, was inspired in the Toblerone case in Sweden. So Serenata de Amor is also a chocolate candy in Brazil. And it's basically an open project that uses data science uh, for monitoring public expenditures at the lower chamber. It's very, the scope is very targeted. And what they do is basically they automatize the collection of data and the cross check of data. And every single time, uh, Rosie, that is the brain, the bot, Uh, every single time she finds a suspicious, uh, it signals and she tweets automatically without saying that is corruption. So basically she says, I found this suspicious expenditure. Can you help me to check it out? And uh, she names the politician and indicates the state from where the politician is and links to a dashboard called Jarbas where people can find more information on that. And it's quite interesting for many reasons. The first reason is, in the beginning, they didn't want to name the politicians when they find the suspicious. They contacted the lower chamber and they asked for action. So they activate the official channels. And at certain point, because a machine with a high capacity to process data they found over 1,000 suspicious cases and the lower chamber didn't have the capacity to analyze that. So the lower chamber said, please contact the politician. And the politicians didn't reply, so that's why they created the Twitter account. And it was created in 2016, but in February, March, March to be more precise, and Rose stopped tweeting. And for a long period, uh, she was not tweeting at all and the dashboard was not being updated. So I was trying to understand what was happening and long story short, the creators that they are three friends who works with technology at certain point, they realized that the project as a startup was not succeeding. So they decided to transfer Rosie to Open Knowledge Foundation. So Open Knowledge Foundation incorporate it as part of its portfolio, but they have other projects as well. So this is not their priority. They are launching other things. Rose is tweeting now again. Finally, I'm happy with that because I'm enthusiastic of this project. But the answer is this type of initiatives, it's hard to be sustainable and it's hard to find funding. So Serenata Jamo or Love Serenade, they still receive money from crowdfunding, 
in the beginning it was better, but then the creators, they thought they could make a leap from that and they really wanted, but they realized it is impossible. So, but they are creating new tools. Open Knowledge Foundation is also developing new things. They developed now another project that they scrap data from the official gazette in municipalities. So they are working on civic engagement as a whole. But Rosie is doing what she was doing in 2016. So it's a bot. She could talk, she could interact, and she could have been used in other chambers uh, at the state level, local assemblies, for example. But unfortunately, uh, she's still doing what she did five years ago. It's an interesting point you made because I think there's often a lot of enthusiasm, as, as we mentioned, when these new projects uh, arrive on the scene. People get excited, the media covers it, people join in. And I guess for both of the projects, right, like you could see this in the beginning, there were a lot of people reporting on I Paid a Bribe and there were a lot of people following Rosie. And then oftentimes with these projects, it sort of dwindles a little bit, you know, like the enthusiasm fades and it starts to become a challenge to keep them going and to keep them effective. I think both of these projects, correct me if I'm wrong, are using a naming and shaming approach to try to fight corruption by basically, you know, saying, well, if the legal enforcement doesn't work, well, maybe then by increasing public pressure, we might be able to change behaviors. Do you think there are, or have you seen any cases that have sustained this public pressure? Because I could see that in the beginning when the enthusiasm is high, you know, people might actually care about it. If there are, for example, many followers of the Rosie bot retweeting these suspicious cases and I am a, a member of the parliament, I might start to actually change my, my reimbursements. Have you seen any indications of success stories where such civic bottom-up approaches have actually been able to sustain this pressure? Well, I must say that in Brazil, although activists complain that it's very hard to keep civil society citizens engaged as a whole for a long time. So you have peaks depending on the context, depending on what is happening in the country. But I consider Rosie a case of success, I would say, because it's been five years. Okay, I just said that uh, she's still doing what she did five years ago. And in terms of technology, this is quite a long period of time. We expect that things improve. But uh, we do have other initiatives, less high tech, uh, I would say, in Brazil. But they've been working, again, with small scope, targeting politicians in local assemblies or in the Congress, in the federal Congress. And like the uh, operation, they uh, they love this name operation. And I'm just uh, making a, a parenthesis here just to highlight how important official law enforcement and anti official anti-corruption initiatives are. Brazil is known for the operations of the federal police and they always have catchy names and they mean test forces as well. So uh, this initiative, I must talk as Operation Love Serenade, it was also inspired by the name of the federal police investigation. 
It's called uh, Supervised Politics, in Portuguese, Operação Política Supervisionada. It started before Rosie, and it has a very similar scope. They try to look at MPs' expenditures, and they've been working since 2003. And they are 200 volunteers. It's a completely volunteer-based, and they check manually receipts thanks to the transparency that we have in Brazil, and it must be recognized, there is data available, open data, reliable data. So, and they do a quite good job. They claim they have recovered over 6 million reais, Brazilian currencies, around 1 million euros in this time frame. So, and they are looking at very petty expenditures, so they are not looking at big cases, and it's impressive. And they keep working, and they keep organizing their own operations with funny names. And maybe just to quickly follow up on that, Fernanda, do you think the reason for their success might be that there are actually human collaboration uh, is involved, that people are actually working together, as you say, con in contrast to letting an algorithm uh, check these expenditures for any suspicious, you know, patterns. If you talk to the leader of the OPS, he's going to say yes, for sure. He believes in engaging people and in civic auditing. But to a great extent, what Rosie does is trying to engage people on Twitter as well, because the algorithm does the job, but basically says, I found a suspicious case. Please help me to check it. So it's an invitation to ordinary citizens, or at least those who are on Twitter, to act or react. But I think, my personal view, sometimes I expect much from people. I, I really want people engage and fight corruption, but sometimes I think it's not everyone's priority. It doesn't mean they are not concerned about fighting corruption, but they don't know how. They are not willing that much because it's kind of hard. It's difficult. And there are costs. It's not that easy in terms... It gives you visibility. If, uh, for example, the Operation Supervised Politics, the leader always get threats, public threats. And sometimes there are politicians who try to sue them or cancel them online or accuse them for things they are not. And what I've been seeing in these both cases is a massive effort to not be linked to in the political spectrum. They try to discover things related to everyone and they find it. So they, they try to escape from the polarization as much as they can. But going back to your question, I think human action is quite important and machines speed up procedures. But there are things that humans need to do. We cannot wait and let machines do all the job for us. Yeah, just to answer uh, the question about whether this tool, I paid a bribe, is a naming and shaming platform. Not exactly. So the idea, uh, I mean, how it works is that if you have paid a bribe, you know, and they also kind of try to tap into that the feeling of gloom, right? After you have done something that, like that, because it's not the right thing to do. It's also going onto this platform and sharing that experience 
you can choose to be completely anonymous. And the idea was also to leverage the anonymity that internet offers. And you can share as much as you want to share. So it's not necessary that you will have to write the name of maybe the customs officer or the policeman or I don't know. I mean, it's very common, for example, in certain offices more than others these practices of taking bribes and what from what I understood from the ex-employees as well as the current employees of Janagra who have worked on I paid a bribe quite extensively is that the idea was to see in which departments bribery was happening more so it was not to single out one particular person the idea was to see where the incidence of bribery was more and then they had a couple of very seasoned bureaucrats, one from the police and one from the administrative services, who would advise them to you know, take certain complaints forward. So the idea, again, was not to engage in direct punitive action or that you know these offices would immediately take this up because also, I mean, Indian bureaucracy is slow. But the understanding was that, you know, if you have a platform like this and if someone really wants to clean up, then you have the information available. So, uh, you know, as we were talking about before we started recording this, the idea is to present as much information as possible. And similarly, so there is also the other aspect of it. So you can, as when you go to the website, you'll see you can also report that I did not pay a bribe. So you might have resisted the system and then you feel happy about it and you want to share or you met an honest officer so that way you know it, it's it was trying to balance uh, in some ways you know not just say okay everyone is horrible not just say that okay the whole system sucks it's not exactly naming and shaming it's more about understanding how much bribery really happens to capture as much data as you know people are willing to share Today, for example, just continuing from the previous uh, answer that I gave, today this platform exists primarily, you know, for researchers like us who then can go on to the platform and see how many people are reporting. You can filter according to the topic. You can filter according to the place and things like that. So it is not much in use and has over the years um lost some of the traction also because the organization itself is focusing on other things more to do with civic participation. I mean, I'm a social psychologist by training and I did some research on, on social norms and in social psychological theory on social norms, you often have descriptive and injunctive norms. So that means like descriptive norm is what is considered to be common and injunctive norms are like what is considered to be acceptable. Right. And there's a lot of research looking at the two and just wonder when it comes to I paid a bribe, whether in, you know, making the information about the frequency of bribery publicly available could also backfire in the sense that if I see, oh, wow, there are so many people paying bribes, I might as well do it, too. Is that something that has ever, you know, come up in the interviews that you've done or in, you know, some of the coverage of this project? Not really. It has not come up. But as I said, when there was, let's say, um, like one of the main offices, which was kind of under the radar because a lot of complaints were received about that was the passport office. 
So it was very common earlier when things were not digitized. And on this, it's not the bottom-up approach, but actually there are government uh, initiatives in India which have made these, uh, applying for these, uh, let's say, your basic documents as citizens much easier. And that's all digitized now, thanks to a lot of e-governance tools. And so it's a little more difficult to uh, take bribes now, but then you still have police the police was to come and verify that it's you who is, uh, you know, in re- receipt of the passport. So th- it's that's one area where bribery happens a lot. So, in fact, uh, one of the bureaucrats who is an ad- used to be an advisor to I paid a bribe, he actually worked towards making this process more smooth and, uh, you know, ensuring that uh, it would not be required, like police verification would not be required. And that way you could eliminate bribery, at least in that department. So as far as, uh, you know, whether people just pay bribe to get a service from a department uh, and Yes, that happens a lot because there are, I mean, you don't even have to go online for that. You can just, or you don't have to go to a platform like I paid a bribe to see where that happens because it's 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 common knowledge that some government departments like, you know, land records or property dealings, passports, and these are areas where it's very, it's common knowledge that, you know, people ask for bribes and so uh, it's like what i think Bauer calls need-based corruption i mean people need those documents so they just pay the bribe so so it depends a lot on personal also efforts and as fernanda said i mean technology can only do that much it, it ultimately depends on the human individual willingness to actually address this issue also. If I may jump in, from day one, since I started this project, I kept asking myself why Brazil doesn't have or it has never had something like a pay the bribe. And my first question to Anwesha was, what do they do with the receipt? Do they investigate it? Do they expose it? Do they send you the agencies or internal affairs units should take action. What happens with the report? Because in Brazil, one thing that I notice is there is a, a great expectation when you report a case of corruption that something's going to happen. Someone's going to take action. And it's hard to deal with people's expectation when you have limited capacity as civil society, for example, to deal with these cases. And this is part of the answer. The other part of the answer is when you have agencies that seem to deal well with corruption investigations, such as the federal police, the prosecution service overall in Brazil, it's not perfect, but law enforcement has been improving over time. People tend to go straight forward to them. So they don't go to intermediaries. Now that we are facing a different environment in Brazil, the car wash suffered a bit with the texts that show that prosecutors and the judge were kind of engaging conversations on Telegram, not official ones. I keep asking myself if this type of technology would succeed or not. I don't have the answer, 
but I, I, I haven't been seeing people trying to develop this type of tools. During COVID pandemic, uh, a prosecutor from the state of Sao Paulo, he created out of the prosecution service within his NGO, a platform to receive uh, reports on corruption regarding COVID purchases and things like that. But he's from the prosecution service, so it's easier to him to take it and send to their colleagues and inv proper investigate it. But still, I think it's hard to civil society do certain things, such as punishing. So the options are limited. They can not vote for the politician, they can cite petitions, they can demonstrate, or they can name and shame. And then technology is quite good because it allows you to collect data, it allows you to expose, and social media helps somehow. But again, there are pitfalls, and we need to think about that as well. If I can add something to that here, because I mean, the place where the physical office of Janagraha is based, which is Bangalore, uh, is a very interesting city and in a very interesting state in India. And the state is called Karnataka. And Karnataka has had Lokayukta, which is the, if I mean, now I'm just making it very, very simple because it's, there's a lot of cultural translation that needs to happen. It's a kind of an anti-corruption court. It's an independent body, but it has ties with the High Court of Karnataka. And to some extent also, I mean, the government of Karnataka, they share the office space. So even if they have been very categorically mentioning that they are completely autonomous, but then that's one organization which is doing some of the things that you just talked about. I mean, they are actually taking up corruption charged cases reported by citizens and addressing that uh, issue, like trying to take action against those people who have been named in those complaints. So, and this has been there in Karnataka since 1984. And uh, in the, and again, I mean, it depends on who the judge is, who the chief is, who the, who the, the head of these offices are, because it depends on also, at the end of the day, individual willingness to fight something which is so endemic to the society. But Karnataka Lokayukta has been a very interesting organization. And what Fernanda said, I mean, for civil society organizations on their own, without some kind of political and administrative support, it's very difficult to actually take proper action, as it were. But having said that, I paid a bribe to some extent managed to highlight this issue and also got justice for some of the people who um, who had reported. Now, when you talk to you know people involved in these bottom-up approaches to fight corruption, do you sometimes sense that there is a certain danger involved in fighting corruption? And what are the counter strategies from citizens when they encounter, you know, that actually there was a great quote, I think, by a former Nigerian anti-corruption, not sure which his role was, um, but he was basically saying, when you fight corruption, it fights you back. So have you ever experienced citizens sort of encountering how corruption fights them back and what were their reactions? Well, in Brazil, surprisingly, when you are acting at the federal sphere, it seems easier and less dangerous. 
than when you are working at the municipal level, for example. So some of my interviewees say that they fear for those who are in small towns. And the strategy they use is they try to help them, for example, asking for information so they don't let the person who lives there submit a request of information, for example. They use their network to request information. Another strategy is there is one public figure, the leader, who goes on YouTube, who tweets about it, who put his face on the spot to protect the other auditors or civic auditors, let's call them that. Also, so as I said, most of them use Telegram groups. So every single time uh, they are on the news, a bunch of new people arrive offering help. But then they say that some of these people are spies. They are not actually people who want to help, but they are advisors for politicians who want to be there to see how they work. And one strategy they use is basically because on Telegram, when you enter in a group, there are ways that you can go back to the day the group was created and you can read all the messages exchanged, but they kind of change that. And then you have access only when from the day you enter. So they try to use these tiny things, protect the friends, act in the name of, on behalf of others to protect themselves. But Overall, they don't say they fear, at least from my part in Brazil. But I noticed that they are very careful in the language, in framing what they say. They never point fingers and say, you are corrupt. So I found a suspicious case. This expenditure is not very, it doesn't look correct. There's something weird here. And they, they avoid to call themselves anti-corruption fighters. They say they are involved in civic tech, they are civic auditors, they are doing social control. Somehow the word corruption is ugly for everyone, including for those who fight it. Very interesting. Before, I'm um, curious also to hear what you think, and which is just my own experience as well, that when we are interacting with either government organizations or um, corporations, we have made very bad experiences in talking about corruption. It seems to be much more successful to talk about either the positive side, so, you know, integrity promotion or something like that, but kind of try to keep the word corruption out because it does, well, trigger a lot of associations and directly becomes more accusing of people and so i think it's a it's an interesting observation that i i do share so what is your experience i wish from from india yes i feel like uh, i mean fernanda really was could be talking about india when she was saying what she just said about how it's i mean even those who are fighting corruption clearly they are but then they do not label it that way they don't they frame Uh, their work as, you know, bringing in more transparency or that they are uh, fighting for good governance or just, you know, fighting for the right to information, which in India, by the way, is a very important tool to fight corruption and to ask for greater transparency and accountability. And I need to tell you a little bit about what 
that is. So it's a law that, if I'm not mistaken, was passed in 2005. I have to check and get back to you. I'll do that. But it allows every Indian citizen to ask from the government questions. It could be about anything. Like if they, of course, are asking like personal stuff, like when will my passport come to me or when will I get that? That's quite not a very good use of the Information Act. But you can ask, okay, how did the government spend this money on for this purpose, etc.? And the government has to respond within a month. So this was like the uh, years of work of many civil society actors, starting with the Mazdoor Kisan Sangh, uh, which was based in Rajasthan. And today, the in the civil society space in India, the ones that I have been observing over the last year or so due to the project, they are all somehow, you know, addressing this issue of uh, great making greater, making more information available to the public. Because the idea is that that's what, as a civil society organization, you can actually do, you know, more than that, like, you know, actually going and fighting corruption is not feasible because you don't just you don't have the power. I mean, the Indian legal setup really does not give you that power. And also, like you said, again, I mean, not going too much into detail, but it is difficult to do that because there is always the risk of threats coming from very powerful uh, public officials, not to mention, of course, politicians and other more powerful people. And here it's also important to remember that almost all these organizations, like Fernanda was also saying, that, I mean, they try to be as nonpartisan as possible. And by nonpartisan here, I also mean very like explicitly not belonging or not favoring one political party over another because in india often corruption scandals are used as vendetta so let's say just before elections or during elections we will hear of some politicians engaged with some scam and then the law enforcement agencies will go and you know like pick them up or talk to them and so and then the the party of which these uh, politicians belong to will accuse the others for using these as vendetta. So in some ways, corruption has become almost, you know, like the, the go-to word or the go-to thing used even for political gains. So it's like the, the game of big boys, as it were. So for these civil society organizations, you know, they are more interested in making as much information available to the public. And yes, I mean, some of the, of course, some of the other keywords include civic participation, civic tech, just ensuring that and deepening democracy. I think that's one very important phrase that came up over and over again. I must just complete one thing that talking with developers and tech people, and they made me aware about something that is super true. And of course, transparency and right to information is crucial. But having clear rules of what can be done with public money, for example, it's even more important, not only for machines, when you are coding and creating the audit trail, but also for citizens who are trying to discover something illegal or that's not regular. So to make it less open and give a specific example, in Brazil, for example, it's easier to 
hold the members of the lower chamber accountable than the Senate, because the rules are more clear in the first one. So if you think at all the old congressional people, they have a quota that they can spend with meals, transportation, and other expenditures like that. In the lower chamber, you can only buy meals for yourself if you are a representative. So you cannot pay lunch for your friends or advisors or so on. You cannot pay for alcoholic beverage. And this makes the life of who is controlling them much easier because if you find a receipt of beer, it's not legal. You need to pay this money back. In the Senate, on the other hand, you have the overall amount, less clear rules. So it's like that. So uh, I, I noticed that not only transparency and right to information uh, is important, but also having very detailed rules, it makes everyone's life much easier, include the machine. That's a very interesting, well, take on this. So how we can make uh, both people's and machines' lives easier. We are almost at the end of the, the interview. And I would like to ask you a question like where you can maybe look into the future a little bit and, you know, feel free to be a little bit extravagant in your, in your views, sort of like, When you look into the future of the respective country that you're most interested in, feel free to pick any if you're doing research in multiple, how could you see a better, uh, a utopian future where technology helps to really reduce corruption? What are ways how technology or what are roles that the technology could play in how, you know, feel free to sketch something that, you know, doesn't have to be close to reality right now. I've been thinking a lot about that because one thing that concerns me a bit is how pragmatical programmers are and they want tech challenges. So they want to automatize things, train algorithms, and sometimes they forget about thinking on bias, on black boxes, on data that is not completely reliable or available. Just to give an example, it's been a long time that the Brazilian Office of the Controller General, they develop and they've been training this algorithm for such a long time that it can flex when there is a risk of a civil servant of being corrupt. And But they, they don't use it. So they've been training that, they've been developing their own skills, but they're No regulation, no legal basis to ban someone for making a formal exam and becoming a civil servant because this person was banned by a machine. What I'm trying to say here is that I think we can do a lot, but before we start doing it, we need also to stop thinking about the pitfalls, the dangers of doing certain things. And by now, as it stands, I'm not seeing people very concerned regarding anti-corruption, AI-based technology, I'm saying. Of course, these bias algorithms, it's a discussion that it's been here and everyone talks when we talk about facial recognition and self-driven cars. 
But in the anti-corruption field, I don't see this discussion. What I would love to see in this dystopian future is machines speeding up procedures, processing check loads of data, of especially on the public sphere, because when you go to private companies, harder to argue that we have the right to know. And then I would love to see citizens using this to claim for uh, better policies, to force politicians to act on ethical basis. And yeah, I don't, I'm not sure if I, I can see a bright future. That's why I'm kind of struggling to answer that. But I would love to see machines helping humans to hold public officials accountable in the best way possible, I would say. Yeah, my answer would be a combination of what I have uh, received as answers from the ground from activists who were previously engineers and, like Fernanda said, I mean, developers, people who have actively worked in the tech space and then have moved to the civic tech space. And also, of course, my own, say, realizations coming from that. So I would say that there is cautious optimism. If I can really try to encapsulate a very complex, let's say, future scenario, because, of course, as you know, I mean, India is one of the more most important, I would say, uh, IT and tech economies, societies, and just the sheer number of people who are gaining access to the uh, to the World Wide Web every day, and the the possibilities that come with uh, so much access is huge, and almost all the initiatives I uh, with whom I've spoken, uh, they say that they want to harness this particular you know capacity, uh, not just of the tech but also of people, especially very young people, because India is a very young country to learn and to share. We are also a very talkative country. So there is a lot of possibility to generate really huge data sets and to ensure, you know, that wrongdoing is recognized. Having said that, I would also like to point out to the digital divide aspect of this, this entire picture, you know, because there are still very uh, strong differences between people who have access and people who do not. And they are, you know, the, your usual suspects. So, of course, uh, young versus old, men versus women. India has one of the very problematic gender digital divide in the world, something that many activists are trying to address. And of course, I mean, urban versus rural, rich versus poor, etc. But then there's also the additional issue, which a lot of activists are genuinely worried about, is the issue of surveillance and, you know, sh shrinking spaces online, you know, to really be able to speak out about wrongdoings, especially if that can be construed as a, uh, you know, as a political fight or a political comment. So uh, then that is the big issue that needs to be addressed, apart from, of course, the fact that, you know, people have all these tools, but they need to be 
made more aware of what they can do with those tools. So there, I think the focus can also be a lot on just raising awareness of being a citizen in democracy in the 21st century. So without that, these tools will not have the power that they potentially have, you know, to address all these issues. But Niels, just to go back, I would, when I was covering the Congress, going back to my old days as a reporter, I had a kind of a inside dream to be like Robocop in the first film in the 80s, where I would look at someone and the person's CV, but with the dirty things would appear. So he's a lobbyist. He had bribed someone. He's here for this and for that. So thinking about dystopia, I would love to have this capacity to have an instant app, take a picture of someone and discover who the person is, especially regarding politicians. But it's not just about the party or the goals and what the person has done, but just what happened behind the scenes. And yeah, I would love to see this Robocop feeling mood in the future and in which we would have enough data to just press a button and know everything about corruption. But then we need to think that data privacy is also an issue and how you combine these two things, it's kind of complicated. But it would be great to walk in in the parliament and see what has happened hidden from the public eyes. It's an interesting idea. I think there are already some projects trying to do similar things. So in Germany, we had the so-called Lobby Radar, which basically had, was a plug-in for your browser that showed you for each politician mentioned in a newspaper article who that politician was connected to. So corporations, where who it, he or she received donations from and so on. And then there is a project that is trying to predict white-collar crime based on facial features. Now, I think the implications of such tools and whether they, uh, you know, are desirable for society or not is probably a topic for an own podcast because I think it's very interesting of how we might actually, by using ever more technology, similar to also what Anwesha just said, we might also restrict the spaces online where people can actually, you know, act freely and, um, I think, yeah, like I said, I think we should probably have another episode just discussing what the implications are. But for now, uh, I would like to thank you, but I would also like to give you the final opportunity to, uh, you know, suggest uh, the pick of the podcast, meaning any book, a movie, film, music, whatever it is that you would recommend our listeners to check out. So I'm going for a documentary, um, Made You Look, a story about fake art. It's on Netflix, and it tells the story that uh, made one of the New York's historic art galleries in the heart of Manhattan to close its doors. And what I really like about this documentary is the fact that it makes us think not only about art forgery, but also about who gets punished. So, uh, it's my pick. And I do have a book. It's in, it's in Portuguese, unfortunately. And would be great to see it translated because it's a book about the Odebrecht. 
And it's kind of a biography of Odebrecht, but focus on corruption since its beginning. So it, it, the name is A Organização, A Odebrecht e o Esquema de Corrupção que Chocou o Mundo. And it was written by a very good journalist, Malu Gaspar. And yeah, it would be great to see that in English because it is a great book. Just for our listeners, the Odebrecht company was a, is it still, right? A very big company in Brazil that was sort of center stage at the whole Lava Jato scandal. And therefore, uh, yeah, whoever reads Portuguese should definitely check it out. Aweja, uh, do you have any, any picks from your side? Yes. Well, I mean, both are, again, I mean, I think because we are mainly now consuming information through the visual medium. So one is a documentary which is freely available on YouTube. And it's just, it's called An Insignificant Man. It's about the rise of the Ahmadmi Party as political force. Uh, and it starts out, of course, with the, with the journey of Arvind Kejriwal, who's now the chief minister of Delhi, and his work as a, as a right to information activist, and the 2011 protests. It's, of course, a, let's say, a fairly biased telling of the story, but it plays out like a political thriller. And for people who don't know much about Indian civil society and Indian politics, this could be an entertaining way of getting introduced to that. And just as I said, just the noisiness of Indian democracy, which is both exhilarating and frustrating. Uh, for me, of course, very exhilarating. And then another fun one, and that's about private sector corruption and big ticket corruption. And that's on Netflix. And it's also fun watch. It's called Bad Boy Billionaires. I don't know if you've already seen it. It was trending for a while. Uh, so yeah, these two. Unfortunately, uh, so far, books on corruption in India are still very few. And the ones that there are, are really, they are academic books. So I think I'll refrain from suggesting those right now. But I think with these, you already have an idea of how the conversation is. Great. Thank you so much. And thank you for taking the time and to appear on Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. This was a very insightful conversation. That's it. Another episode of Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. My name is Niels Kürbis, and I do this podcast together with Christopher Starke, Jonathan Kleinpass, and Matthew Stevenson. It's a joint production of the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Anti-Corruption Blog. If you like what we do, you can support us in multiple ways. You can recommend it to your friends, you can like us on Twitter, or you can become a Patreon. More information on this can be found on our website. You can find us on icrnetwork.org. We really hope that you enjoy the episode.